Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. My name's Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here with our producer, Tun Miai. We're three artists living and working in New York City. And this is being recorded on the fly. In between our many jobs and creative endeavors, we use this podcast to ground us in a space where there are so many ways to lose yourself. So join us. We have real conversations with artists we admire on the art grind. Sigur, I don't... What me, is me, that me, doing me. for me? Red <laughs> <laughs> leather, yellow leather. Yeah. <laughs> she sells seashells by the seashore. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. My name is Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here today. You know, you got to tell me how to pronounce your last name. <laughs> Just my last name. <laughs> it's Anastasia. Well, or that's it... what I tell. That's what I tell most people. So my name is Anastasia, which means the resurrection. The resurrection, correct? Is that you know, because right? you're Greek. Yeah. And my last name is in English, Tarasenko. Just Tarasenko. 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 How do you say it, really, though? Um, Tarasenko. Tarasenko. I've heard it both ways. I like the, the second one. The, that's whatever cool. syllable. You know. Tarasenko. Yeah. When I'm like looking at a lot of your paintings, what's the word I was writing down? Oh, existential realism was the <laughs> word right. I wrote down. Because they're they're really, really literal. Feels like it's the end of the world, but it's okay. Let's have a laugh about it. Yeah. Invested in this universal perspective, but not any one story is really that important to you. It's it's everything going on at the same time. So you're creating these huge worlds where anything goes. I, I don't know. I'm just kind of cracking open a can of worms here. Do you want to write my artist statement? Because that was pretty slack. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, I think when you're making your work, you know, you're sort of too close to the fire to see the fire for what it is. So, um, it's, yeah. So that's like one of the, not one of the first times for sure, but you know, it's one of the only rare times that I get to hear somebody's outside perspective on my work. And I'm glad that it reads that way because that's what I think about, you know. And mm. you just hope to God that your paintings can read in the way that you are thinking, you know. Because generally speaking, like, are paintings more interested than the things we think about? Or are paintings just the pivotal point, the distillation of our thoughts, you know? So do you, do you want that to communicate... Do you want your message to communicate or do you mind if someone like comes up to you at a gallery and like, oh, I love this painting because it says this and this to me and it's not of your intention. Is that, does that That would be you? so great. No, yeah. I don't think there's anything I, I am like specifically like this painting is about mm -hmm. the toil of man. You know, like if somebody comes to me and it's like, this painting made me feel funny and I think this and this, I think that's fantastic. I think it doesn't every artist sort of want to have a variety, you know, of, of perspectives. Doesn't that really mean something when somebody says something different? Every person has a different thing that they glean from it. I went to the Academy and so I applied, you know, six figures of debt later. Um, you know, I, I had a great time there because it, I went in there because I could paint and draw and I wanted to use those skills to sort of articulate my vision better. And I ended up in a place I didn't expect. So I extensively used photography or life and like, you know, I could draw and paint and you know, fantastic. Right. 
But then I realized like whatever's going on in my head is not reflective of what my paintings look like because I'm still tethered to reference. I'm still tethered to photographs, right? Or, you know, or some sort of a need or, you know, I need to make it look real somehow. Mm-hmm. But um, the best thing I got out of there is that you, you don't need any of that shit. You could literally paint straight from your head and it could look better than any highly rendered, I don't know, eyeball mm-hmm. that you could ever do. So that was the most unexpected lesson that I learned there. So all those things that like my paintings ended up being were all the things that were going on in my head, but I didn't know how to articulate them. And mm-hmm. eventually I learned and I got a lot of shit in that school because people didn't really understand why I had you know, started to paint like a clumsy ass if I knew how to paint. And suddenly I'm painting like a, I don't know. It was it was an interesting conversation. I remembered that, uh-huh. that yeah, transition. They, they, they told me I was de-skilling or whatever. Like they threw things at me that I was like, "This is fair," because you don't know what's going on in my head. But I could tell you this is the most honest approach that I can have. You know. Yeah, you need I always to, trusted you need to paint that about you. Reflect what's going on in your head. Yeah. Not hmm. at the service of your skills, but at the service of your vision and what's going on in there. And you that's know? what makes a great painting. Yes. Yeah, it's a great painting. I think about that a lot. Just like form illuminate the content or content illuminate the form, you know, and it feels like choosing one of those directions makes a much different image, even from the same painter, you know. Um, So what was that struggle like? Did you were you doubting yourself with that change or were you pretty confident with it and just sort of fuck you teachers or yeah you know i took that approach because (laughs) i loved that (laughs) i loved watching that (laughs) i took that approach because that's the approach you have to take Uh uh-huh you know in order to have courage you need to almost pretend that you're courageous you know and then Uh, that pretense will carry you far enough along the path that when you are sort of feeling down you could be like, well, I made it this far, pretending to have faith in myself. I can make it a little further even you know, though I'm in a slump. You we, know? we had a, a guest on the show last week. Do you know Kyle Staver? Yeah, I love Kyle Staver. Yeah. She was here. She was sitting on this couch. And she said that she had a moment where she realized after school, she's like, you know what? I'm never going to make a painting if I keep doing all these studies. She's like, I'm going to pretend that I know everything. Yes, <laughs> that's what she said. And then I'm a real painter and I'm going to make a great yeah. painting. And then she was able to, and then she never looked back. Yeah. And that, yeah. And you know, and in my darkest moments where my creativity slumps is when I will doubt my ability to just keep going and to like, I'll doubt my own validity as a painter. I'll be like, Oh, mm-hmm. well, what right do I have to make a painting? What right do I have to for people to like it, you know, or to say this or to pass this as a painting? You know, this is so shitty. How can I pass this as a painting? Mm-hmm. And that's when I have my like darkest, most depressed moments. And then when I'm confident, I'm like, you know what? Painting is not about, you know, it's just you could literally anything I do at this point, any mark that I put down on paper is a work of art. I've seen you have those you know? moments, too. I've seen you paint things in those moments. And I'm just like, fuck, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think that way, too, Sophia? Like, like the the extremes yeah yeah or in yeah um i think that my ups and downs include a variety of things between you know total self-doubt this is trash what it, what do i think i know how come i'm not capable of getting this right what information do i not have what intelligence am i lacking that's kind of it goes down that hole Mm -hmm. 
piece of shit. And then, <laughs> then there's the apathy island. Apathy island. <laughs> Who cares? Uh-huh. Not me. No one else. <laughs> I'll never get this shown. I don't think I'll ever have an, an opening. I don't think I'll ever have a show. I don't think I'll ever finish this painting. But that doesn't matter. Nobody cares. And then there's like, I'm fucking amazing. And no one knows it yet. I can't wait. <laughs> Just like live for those moments. Uh, yeah. Like a few days a month that I get to feel like I'm God's gift to the human race. You know, totally. They erase all the other times and I feel completely inadequate and shitty as a human being. You know, I think that's what every everybody has to deal with, you know. And for some people, I think it um, that feeling will overwhelm the other, the feeling of inadequacy will overwhelm the positive things that they get from it, you know. Mm-hmm. And they will not continue because it can be really, it could be mentally really, um, really bad when you're not getting validation or you're not getting a show or, you know, you're not getting something, you know, mm-hmm. you could feel really shitty. You could feel really like nobody cares. Why am I doing this? I just spent a small fortune or I'm sorry, not spent a small fortune. I indebted myself a small yeah, fortune, yeah. a mortgage on a house, <laughs> you know, and in those moments, it's hard to sleep at night. You know, and yeah. you have to sort of find the things that soothe you. And, you know, this, this is not real. The world is not real. But with, Everything's not real, you know. No. Without the financial aspect of it, do you guys, you in particular, but I do want to hear from Sophia on this. Do you, do you want outside validation? Is that, does that run through your head a lot? Or is it just like, God, if I had a billion dollars, I'd just paint and then never worry about what anyone thought you know um i think the real currency is the validation isn't you know mm-hmm. you could have a lot of money money would be fantastic don't get me wrong i would love all the money in the world mm-hmm. but i think if i've seen very many unhappy rich people so i don't think that money is necessarily the thing that would get you over the threshold if you're an artist like mm-hmm. of course i would continue painting of course but if you're uh of course, you also want people to look at the paintings and appreciate them and love them and by extension love you and you have these fantasies of being immortalized as this great, you know what I mean? Like it could uh-huh. go really fucking far <laughs> with these fantasies and delusions. But I think the real currency is not the money, you know. Mm. I agree with it not being the money, but I think the currency for me is a spiritual growth. It's a physical object. It that- just marks time in your life. It marks time in your life. It marks an understanding, our knowledge, and inner knowledge. A um, signpost that you could, a mile marker. You could refer back to that painting was done at that time. I was feeling this way. Now I feel But that there's way. something sacred about it uh-huh. because there's so much of your soul invested in it that it's more than just a sign. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you feel about your painting when you finished it? Like, so, you, like, I spend, I don't know, lately I've been spending a lot of months on one painting and when I'm done with it, I'm like, I never want to look at you again. You know what I mean? Like, I appreciate you. I did you. You're fantastic. But this was a journey in the moment. And you don't want to look at it again. Well, just temporarily. Cause yeah, it's done. You know, but um, does it become a precious object to you or does it stay? Does it stay as the experience of painting it? You I think know? it's simultaneously all of those things. I think it's, you know, what you overcame a period of time in your life where you're going through some shit that nobody knows about, probably won't know about when they look at it. It's, um, it's finished because you came to some conclusion about it, 
about yourself inside of it. Yeah. So the journey's done and I like looking at the image in that way, like maybe in a nostalgic way or like maybe that's about yeah. as precious as it becomes for me. Like, oh, mm. I remember that. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost humbling to see that painting again, especially ones that are older. Mm. It's very humbling to see because you're like, wow, that's where I was. I hate that. But it's uh. such a beautiful thing that I understood there or a beautiful place that I existed in right there. And nobody knows that but you, Yeah, actually. Mm. I've looked back at paintings I did that I hated in the moment or right afterwards. And I was like, oh, God, this is a shitty painting. And then I look back at them like, I will never be that brilliant ever again. This <laughs> <Yeah>. is great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How do I do that? I lost, I lost what I had. Yeah. Where did I go wrong? Exactly. And then you start changing, <laughs> chasing the nostalgia dragon and you sort of you know, go shitty on yourself because you're like, I have all, I became too much and this is not, I'll never get that back, you know. I don't quite know what it is, but I think my old paintings make me sad usually. Yeah. I always kind of look at them with a little sadness for some reason. There's something almost alien about it. Like, what was that? Who was doing that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely that alien feeling. Um, mm -hmm. you know. But then you're like, uh, I don't know, there are paintings that I did a long, long, long time ago that I, I don't know, almost threw away. And then I'm like, this is great. I should hold on to this, you know? Mm. And just because it looks different to what I do now, you know, stylistically speaking, doesn't mean it falls away from who I am. And, you know, like you would look at that and be like, this is still the same person who did this. They just did it with a different hand than who did the new work. Mm -hmm. And I think like maybe that's a relic of, I don't, I don't think it's a relic because there is a certain understanding, even more so in today's contemporary art world with young artists, that you have a look as an artist. You know, you look and paint a certain way that is really specific to you and you've honed it. And it's what we in illustration, when I worked as an illustration agent, called the signature style. You mm -hmm. know, an illustration that's really valid because you are selling a product, you're selling your hand, and you're selling the predictability of your style to Almost a client. branding at that yeah. time. And then, you know, when I came to fine art, I was, I think I was almost disappointed that there is the same approach with fine art. Like you're selling the predictability of your work. Yeah. And, and I would prefer to sell me as a artist and with a vision, with a personal philosophy I, over and, my and style. And you want to sell, not, I mean, sell might not be the right word, but you, you want to, you want that to have room for your own personal growth. Mm -hmm. Like, do you ever, you ever see someone or like, I don't know. You talk about an old friend, you know, oh, how's Sandra doing? And someone's like, she's great. She hasn't changed a bit. And you're like, that's the worst thing you could say about a human being, right? Like, yeah. She's been arrested development since 15. Oh, <laughs> she's man. totally stunned. Sandra. I know, Sandra. She sells seashells with, uh... <laughs> yeah. oh, God. She hasn't adapted to the plastic one. No. So it's like, and I think a lot of painters hit that hit that note. Oh, they haven't changed in 30 years. How great is that? And it's like, God, I, you know, branding be damned. I would hate it if that's said about me, even in two years, you know, it's like, let's. Yeah. And it could be a matter of market pressure too to stay the same, you know, because you, 
um, developed a collector base that expects a certain thing from you or mm-hmm. like how many shows have you seen recently of artists that have been really well established and have been around for a long time and have had a really early start in their career and who end up sort of going into some a lull because they can't continue to do the same work over and over again you know i'm talking yeah. about like jenny savile and her recent show and not to shit on her at all because i think she's brilliant and wonderful you know but there's something to be said about like how how long can you continue doing the things you did 20 years ago when you were almost practically a different person mm-hmm. you know at 20 like you're a different person than when you're 30 and you're 40 and like do you have the same i don't know at that point are you making a product are you making a painting i don't know i didn't actually like that sh- that new that new show that you just had i felt like it was more of the same but do I get to say that it's that I'm bored of it? Yes. Yeah, I think you do. Yeah. I think you do. I think everybody gets to say they're bored of it and everybody gets to say that they fucking love it. You know, that is what art is. You give it, it's a public object at that point. I think everybody should express a true opinion. A true opinion, that sounds like an oxymoron, but I think everybody should be exercising their right to express an opinion when it comes to something that is so opinion-based like art. Like, if, I think, like, if you walk into a gallery, you should full well have say i don't like this you know even if it's in your own head i don't like this and this is why or go into another gallery i love this this is why i feel like i've learned so much through opposition you know through understanding what i don't like just as much as what i do like and if you're just you know walking around especially as an artist and you're just like well i understand this work i don't may not like it but you know this is great this is what i you know i think opinion is uh, opinion is important and i think my let's but like my art is not for everybody i'm sure that there are people who are like, well, what is this? We have you know? to talk about that. I just want to make this one quick point. When I look at work, I often find myself saying, I don't like that. I wonder why. And I spend yeah. so much time trying to figure out Same. why yeah. I hate that painting. Mm. Yeah. What, what am I not seeing? And it could be that you end up going full circle. Right. And you end up being like, well, actually, I do like it. You know? Uh-huh. I just couldn't articulate why I didn't like it because it was so confusing to me. And that confusion is actually pleasurable. So my viewing experience was pleasurable unbeknownst to me until I really thought about it. You know? Because mm. sometimes so, I dislike, I like disliking things just as much as I like liking them. Sometimes more so. I'll spend more energy on things that I dislike. You know? So you, you touched on something interesting. Confusion is pleasurable. <laughs> and then we started this conversation with you talking about some super niche debate that you heard with Stephen Fry. So that means that you are on the journey. You're an intellectually very curious person. And, and you're not afraid of nuance and debate. And you don't feel intimidated by these things. But don't you think... The average person checks out the moment things get confusing. Like it takes a certain type to enjoy confusion. You can take the heat. That's not a common trait. I want to not think that is true. I, you're probably right, but like I, I hope that's not true. And I think that everybody can exercise a level of intellectual curiosity and is fully capable of it. But I understand what you're saying because I, you know, was raised with several people in my family who don't have that, you know, and several who do. And it was always a matter of being at odds with the people that do in my family and the people that don't, the ones where we could sort of have conversations that sound like we're at each other's throats arguing that are actually, we're getting to the core. We're not, we don't hate each other. 
then mm-hmm. the other side of my family would be like, why are you arguing? Blah, blah, blah. And we're like, we're not. We're just trying to get to the middle of something, mm-hmm. you know? Right. And what I think I'm getting at is when I look at your paintings, they have various, like, I don't know if tropes is the right word that you could say are cynical, but they're not cynical paintings. And I was trying to put my finger on that. And I think it's because you correct me if I'm wrong. You don't treat the audience cynically. You are sort of like people are willing to look at stuff and engage with them. And I'm going to give them a lot to think about here, you know, whereas I think many other painters or movie makers or musicians treat the audience like just give the dummies what they want. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> well, playing to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Too. And that's yeah. a huge, that's a huge mass of us is lowest common, you know? And yeah. I think there's something really hopeful to me about the way you treat your audience. Like it comes through in your pings. They seem fairly hopeful, even though it's, you know, kind of wild things going on mm. because you are, there's a certain dignity you're treating the people who are going to look at them, you know? I want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Uh That comes through. It's funny that you say that because one of the things that I hate the most is being hit in the head with a message. Right. Whether it's in a movie or an article Uh or whatever. Like somebody who takes like the, I don't know, the simplest approach to a problem, you know. And I, if it's like a movie that's just trying to hammer you in the head, like this is our positive message. But Uh they'll almost like patronize their audience. They'll be condescending to them. You know, they'll... It, it doesn't it doesn't digest well with me. You know, right. I think everybody is capable of being smarter than people are willing to think that they are, you mm-hmm. know, and I think it's just a matter of, I don't know, maybe exposure. You're probably right that most people aren't, but it doesn't matter, does it? You know, should people at least strive to be, you know, and if not strive to be, then just, you know, the audience will find itself kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know. And those people that don't want to engage won't, and the ones that will, will. And if you're going to pander to an audience that you want to, because you're already projecting that there is an audience for this, I don't know if that's um, if that message will come across at all. You know, if you're not approaching it with sincerity, but as if you're selling a product. And on it, like, so I was thinking on the way over here, you asked me, like, what do you think makes a good painting? And I was thinking about that a lot. Like, I yeah. appreciate soul in a painting. Clumsiness. Mm-hmm. Clumsiness does not imply lack of technique, not at all. There are many incredibly technical paintings that are also clumsy because they approach it from a way that feels vulnerable and human. You know, like Kurt Cowper, like he makes some of the most robotically cold paintings. Yeah, there's I love something those. about them that just feels so strange, strange enough to be somewhat clumsy. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So if somebody is like selling me a political message in a painting that is just so over the top that takes me for being simpler than I actually am or is obvious. I don't know. I'm not always into that. As your audience. Yeah. I love that in paintings. I love seeing the artist in other paintings, you know, who they are Mm -hmm. because through a deep sense of personal truth, you can get to a really universal truth. You know, it's like the microcosm macrocosm. Mm -hmm. You could get really, really far deep into yourself. And all you'll find is the fact that you're the same as everybody else, you know, or you could zoom out and look at a global level and you'll still find the same thing that you're the same as everybody else, you know? So it's like the two truths. I think there's like some philosophical name for that. And I just read it once and I forgot, but you know, don't count on me on being very smart when it comes to philosophy, (laughs) sort of glaze over and absorb what I want. But, um, 
think the I don't know um, dichotomy of truth on one end and the other you have um, symmetry hmm I think about that dichotomy of like truth and beauty and does that coexist well and and would you say yours are more truthful or more beautiful like what are you I never understood that because I beauty is arbitrary in my mind oh so I never really quite understood like <laughs> truth and beauty that. and even truth can be arbitrary so you're talking about two arbitrary sides of an arbitrary spectrum so I don't know do you know what I mean? Like, uh -huh. I will think myself into a corner with that question because I'll be like, I actually don't know what beauty means in that conversation. I feel like beauty is a term that is used to apply to maybe ideal is the more accurate term. Idealism. Yeah, ideal. They say like opposite of beauty being a deformity. So beauty is the iconic view. You also said the word like dialed out. You look for the macro view and I can't help but a flash of all these images and of your paintings they feel like bruegel does like dialed out you know like yeah. looking at the whole with all these little little pockets, little pockets of clicks and things going on doing things you know yeah i think one of the worst things that judeo-christian tradition has embodied people with is a sense of um narcissism about the human race that we are chosen we're chosen and we're individual, you know, mm -hmm. and that we're unique and that our existence on this planet, I'm not even on this planet, you know, I'm not even sure that that perception goes that far, but like it, the, our existence on this earth, earthly plane, let's put it that way, is temporary and then we'll go to heaven or hell. Or we have dominion while we're here. Exactly. And everything is created for us and everything is for our consumption. And I think that is one of the worst things that we got out of it, you know, mm -hmm. I keep thinking about like you you use a lot of dicks in your paintings i think dicks are great yeah. can you talk about that a little <laughs> yeah bit? let's hear more about that well maybe that's another sort mean? of relic of judeo-christianity is our fear of genitals and naked bodies and the idea that somehow seeing a dick more than once is somehow an exceptional you know or somehow perverted i think like so i you know i'm i've read a lot of books or i'm interested a lot in like ancient people and ancient greeks you know your people they love dicks. People. Ancient Greeks, they had dicks everywhere. You know, they dick, like tiny oh, dicks. Yeah, they, you know, <laughs> dicks on wings were, uh, you know, dick graffiti. Dicks are just like a normal, natural part of their visual narrative. So um, I think we're just, we only think that is exceptional because it's not part of our visual narrative. We have this weird, you know, approach to sexuality or nudity, you know, or that implies that it's somehow weird or, or I don't know, perverse somehow. You know, I, I've sort of been at odds with like the word, the term feminism, you know. Tell us about that. So I do consider myself to be a feminist, mm -hmm. but I am a humanist more so. Like I'm a woman, right? I identify as being a female, but I'm, I'm a human being first. And I experience the mm -hmm. world through a female lens and I can't escape that. And I don't want to escape that. I embrace it, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'm not at odds with men. I'm not at odds with anybody that identifies as any other gender as right, women. Right. You know, I think you that we have huge problems with the way that we divide gender, you mm -hmm. know, with the implications of behavior and dress and, you know, anything. I think we have huge issues that need to be addressed without gendering people. And um, so there's a lot of feminist message in my work because inevitably that's the lens through which I experience life, you know. So there will be a lot of like, 
you know, things that sound that seem like they're not for men or not against the patriarchy in whatever way. But, you know, I think it's more coming from a place that this is the world that I've experienced. This is the body that I've experienced the world from. If I was a man, it probably would be different. Maybe I would be painting more beautiful tits. I don't know. Probably, you know, Hmm. but I don't blame men for painting beautiful tits, you know, right? I really don't. I can't. I'm with you there. I can't Mm. because it would imply that I'm shaming, somehow shaming their sexuality or their sexual desires or expressions or idealisms. You know, Mm. like I think art is a world of fantasy and you should be able to express your fantasy however you see fit. You know, so if you want to paint beautiful women for the rest of your life, by all means, go for it. If you want to paint beautiful men, by all means, go for it. You know, again, don't hammer people over the head with your message you know try to be sincere maybe you know i think the awareness is a most useful tool mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. have when you're taking any kind of yeah i don't know how to say that awareness and empathy are really yeah. powerful tools when I it agree. comes to just speaking to people and getting your points across yeah who are you talking to how can you say it in a way that they'll get it, that they won't just be completely turned off by it? And in that way, sometimes I think some of the metaphors that you use with sexuality or these like fun experimental kind of perversities, like kind of just dripping or sprinkled across some of these paintings, in that way they kind of become like a filter well, what do you think about that? Do they become a filter for certain audience members that just can't look at that? Or whatever the filter is, that? I'm not purposefully trying to set it. Okay. You know, it sets itself. Like I, I do what I do and then people will find, my audience will find itself. Like there have been people who looked at it and they'd be like, I don't want to look at this anymore. Or I don't get it. I my love family. Like my, my parents look at it, sigh and turn around and walk away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't blame them. I think that's most That's going to be one of my questions. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> What's the reaction? I there? have like a traditional, you know, Russian family. And um, I don't think even the fact that I do art is unusual. You know, art is, yeah, art is right. a luxury thing. It's a luxurious profession to be part of, you know. Which it totally is in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of truth behind that. Yeah, I mean, I'm dirt poor, but America allows the luxury of being an artist. You know, mm-hmm. poor artists where, you know, where I grew up, not grew up, where I was born. I didn't really grow up there. I left when I was six. Art was not a luxury that was afforded, you know. And wh- where was that? I was born in Ukraine. Okay. In 1989. 89. Yeah, so that was like a few years before, you know, whatever collapsed the fall yeah that was interesting i was was 92 i i you know it was a gradual process between like 1990 and 1992 okay 29 you're going on 30 you're bilingual in a couple weeks yeah i'm turning 30 yeah and my bilingual yeah you're bilingual which means you speak fluent russian which means a lot of words have genders Oh, yeah, they do. Oh, uh, yeah. They do, yeah. Like, yeah. Can you do. give us a funny, weird example that... <laughs> Almost every noun has gender. Yeah. So, like, what's a teapot? What's a glass? God. I should say I speak Russian with an American accent. <laughs> <laughs> a chinyak, which is a teapot, is male. 
Oh. Because he has a spout. spout. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That is so loaded, the language. Keep going. A uh, chashka, which is a glass, is female. Because it has an opening. It's just the whole. It has less to do with uh, that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> if it ends in a vowel, generally speaking, it's um, female. You know, my parents grew I grew up religiously, and um, I left the church when I was 12, and it became pariah in the view of my family when you were 12 yeah i just like couldn't take middle it finger up like see you guys well nobody really thought any further than this is what we believe uh-huh. and um that's it and if you question that then you have something wrong with you yeah so uh yep and i left and um ever since i was little i was i had that perspective like the grand perspective like there this there's a sky above us and i believe that the universe is vast mm-hmm. i don't know if it's infinite but it's vast and that must mean that we mean nothing at some scale. But then know? that's the hardest dichotomy to live with. Nothing matters, right? Like almost empirically, like you can feel like you can prove that in a way, but you have to live as if things do matter to, to do anything. It's right? one of like, those things you could go you full circle with. Yourself, if right? nothing matters on a cosmic scale, then everything matters on a human scale. If People will say that atheists don't have a moral compass, but right. if my responsibility is not to God, but it's to my fellow man, then I think that's much more consequential than it is to, you know, be beholden to a God. Because Absolutely. I have real, my actions have real world consequences. Because with that theory, then you can't be a suicide bomber because there's yeah. nothing at the end and what you do here really does matter. Exactly. And the people that you're killing... There is no mm-hmm. God rewarding you for that. You are killing lives. You're taking the lives of your fellow yeah. human being, and you're responsible to those people, it's and like they're responsible for you. Yeah, you know, and it's an exchange. And I think religion kind of makes a third party situation yeah. happen that I think muddies that water and you're creates actually, a moral dilemma that shouldn't exist. You're actually robbing someone of their short fleeting existence, whereas yeah. other ways of thinking, you're just sending them to a better place. You know, like, yeah, exactly wild or to hell where they deserve to rot you know and that's yeah exactly another that's you know? another uh i don't even want it's to absurd it's an it. absurd yeah. idea you know when you become so obsessed about the afterlife that you sort of forget what empathy means in the this life you know in the actual life and yeah. um i think if we practice more of that here and now and less of it then and later i think it would be much better because people are big hypocrites because they will exercise that but they will exercise it in a way that's really selfish. Mm-hmm. It's fundamentally selfish. You're they're scared, they're terrified. So they are more scared and terrified for their own life, so they won't associate themselves with any sort of empathy to any other kind of people. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's a selfish impulse, I think. You know. I this this leads me to a question about your paintings. Because there seems to be Almost like what? What did you call them? Existential realism. Mm. It's a great title, but there seems to be almost like a an overwhelming nature to them. Almost an absurdity. Almost people's activity on a on like a my macro level feels a little absurd in them. Like, well, this person's doing this next to this person doing that. And do you think that the the impetus to that is? humans creating absurd societies or nature is absurd and we're stuck here and we're doing the best we can. With I feel it. Like, like it's that one. I, yeah. I think it's a, 
option B? No. Um, I think it's, um, I think we're too successful. So as a species, we're too successful on planet earth. Like if you're going to think objectively that our lives don't matter. And I think you said you align with that point of mm-hmm. view, the cosmic point of view, then our lives don't matter any more than say a zebras. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a really acute sense of when a species has gotten out of control right mm-hmm. when it comes to like deer population or frogs in australia or whatever the fuck right you know so we'll be like oh there there are too many of them let's go kill them all because they're killing the ecosystem but we right. have like that imagine approaching it that way but we are now the species that is too successful for our own good <laughs> and in order to survive the way that we're surviving we need to create these absurd things to hold us all together because we're not evolved to function in that way. So we have to create a system in which we can function that way. So we will, mm. we have amazing imagination. So I like we could, this answer. Yeah. I like this answer too. Yeah, yeah. So we forge like absurd ways of thinking that we all buy into and require that we all buy into them. And, um, we continue on because it's a survival mechanism and we're really fucking good at surviving. We're too good at surviving at this yeah, point. You know, I'm not, you yeah. know, advocating for anything, but I'm just thinking like, we are too good at this point. Yeah. You know, what can we do in the future? Or what will happen on our behalf in the future because we can't continue the way that we're continuing. Lord knows the earth is going to be just fine without us and it's going to find a way to cleanse. Right. You know, but in the meantime, what do we do for our survivability other than creating more and more levels of absurd beliefs to keep Mm -hmm. us going, you know, keep us glued together or glued to systems that should be obsolete, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. So is that kind of like, is that a neuroses you see? Like all these little neuroses pop up, like, I don't know, the, whatever we do to, to maintain some level of sanity in, in all this, is that what you're painting in some way? Yeah, I think so. I Hmm. think it's also that normalcy is a product that is sold by the system to us straight up but like created it it's almost like it's advertised to us that's bottomless that you'll never attain but it every every screen you look at is selling you some is telling you you're not good enough you're not normal yeah and so buy tide or whatever and you'll be a little more normal it's fucking absurd And, and i think it's completely biologically understandable like if you if you really under like if we're all social creatures so social cues and social you know standards are really important to us and so we'll be really fucking sensitive when something mm-hmm. is being sold to us mm-hmm. and we'll pick that up and some people are more sensitive than others then you'll have some people who are like completely like bohemian artists i don't care and i'll do whatever the fuck i want but rarely ever do you have somebody who's like you know completely off of the grid and off of the system living on an island by themselves hermits are exceptionally rare like there's a You're documentary like the Unabomber about, at that point yeah exactly and then you know then that's a whole other psychological she thing was pretty unpack. brilliant <laughs> yeah like there's a documentary about that hermit in siberia who's lived on his own for like 20 years or something like that you know completely by himself oh i've heard of that yeah. yeah but that's exceptional so like we're really sensitive to social cues and then you have marketing companies who are conglomerates of people Right. They're not just like a separate monster entity. They're a conglomerate of people that understand the vulnerabilities because collectively they have sort of unpacked that. Mm -hmm. And then they will exploit those vulnerabilities and then they will sell you that pair of jeans or Mm -hmm. that thing that you need to do or that social media thing that you need to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, suddenly you'll find yourself down a deep, deep rabbit hole because you are programmed 
to think that way. I mean, it's like Karl Marx was saying, like, uh, a capitalist society doesn't create goods. It creates need, like, wants. Yeah. So, like, the the tide isn't going to, that you know, the detergent isn't going to make your life better. That car won't. And at some level, we know that. But there's a deep want in us that's been put there by advertisers to be like, well, maybe this will work, you know? Well, they're master manipulators. Yeah, they're masters. That's Edward Bernays. He started yeah. that whole fucking thing. When you're... The illusion of choice. Right. And, um, you know, and that that being said, like, you know, I, I come from a former Soviet nation, right? The, you know, jeans were illegal. My parents had to buy jeans on the black market, which is like an absurd thing to think about, but oh they did. Um, <laughs> I, I like that. I yeah. like that. <laughs> black market <laughs> jeans. facts about Anastasia. I'm going to throw this out there right now. If somebody wants to start a jean company that's called Black Market Jeans. Yeah, um, not know. a bad, not a bad name. Uh, not a bad name. Yeah. So, but they still had desires and wants and needs to, you know, and um, I'm much less interesting to talk to about this than my sister who really grew up with it. You know, she's 10 years older than me and she was really in the thick of it. She was part of like, they had their own like version of the Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, but it was really political. So they really indoctrinated you from a really young age and, you know, Father Lenin is God kind of thing. And uh, Mm -hmm. so she has a lot of interesting things to say how when politics become religion, that is something also that they're marketing to you as, as an ideal to adhere to. In America, it was different. It was more of a consumerist thing. You must be the perfect, in that same era, the perfect housewife. You, you know, mm-hmm. get the perfect product. Mm-hmm. You are part of this, the wonderful capitalism of America. You are a consumer, and that is a glorified ideal as a consumer. You buy and you sell, and you're perpetuating American greatness. Mm-hmm. But that is not the truth. You know, that is a truth that coexists mm-hmm. with other kinds of truth. Mm-hmm. But anytime you have millions of people living together in one country, as according to one set of rules and ideals, you have to create some massively weird and absurd belief system to keep it going. I had a conversation one time with somebody once. It was really frustrating because they said that you can't be a moral person without believing in God. Like it, you cannot have morality without God. I don't believe that at all. I don't, I don't believe that. Either. I don't believe that either. And it, is actually kind of a scary thing if you do believe it because it implies that your moral code is better code well yeah but that your the the code of a religious person relies on their faith in a third party versus an innate sense of good and bad right and wrong i don't include sexuality in right and wrong meaning like a normal healthy expression of adult consensual sexuality and it is included in religious code right yeah, and I don't think that's a natural thing. You it's know? like vestigial, like you're 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 looking at a moral code that was written, well, in the case of the Bible, what like two thousand years ago. That's like, I mean, times change a little, you know. Or yeah. Declaration of Independence. It's like may have worked for a few years back in seventeen seventy six, but we're a totally different place right now. We have automatic weapons. It's I wonder. I wonder world. what that place will be like. I'm excited to be alive now. I don't know about you guys. Like, I'm not an. I'm not, not a pessimist. <laughs> I'm not a pessimist. I'm uh, not an optimist either, per se. But I'm not a pessimist. I'm not like one of those people that's like, oh, we're gonna fuck up the world and everything's gonna end. You know, I'm not gonna glory in it either. But um, I'm generally, I think, an optimist because mm. I think that we're evolving into something faster than we have a biological ability to understand right because we're still fundamentally physically the same as we were when we were roaming the plains you know but 
I'm excited to see what artificial intelligence will do for us. Mm -hmm. What the inevitable explosion of social media implosion, I should say, of social media will do for us. Mm -hmm. We can't continue going the way that we're going. And we're about to see like a fundamental shift, some sort of crazy thing happen. And I'm generally really excited to see what that means. You know, I think it's a it's a strange and lucky time to be alive, you know. And I'm happy to be young in this era because it means I'll get to be old in a completely different one. Mm -hmm. And I'll get to be like one of those grumbling old people who doesn't understand. I don't understand how my robot works, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so I can't upload my self, my consciousness into this thing. Help me upload myself. You know, it'll be, I think we're, we're good at adapting. We should take a quick break. I think it'll be weird, Sexbot 2000. Well, that's already happening. So some of the, you know, some of the most uh, interesting breakthroughs and, you know, robotic things are happening in the sex side of things. Well, that that goes back to your painting. I do want to hear more about your views on sexuality, sexuality in the characters in your paintings. Is it... Yeah. Is it fun? Is it scary? Is it ludicrous? Is it like what where are you where are you coming from? And actually for both of you in particular, I would like to be educated and listen to uh, you know that that side of uh, a woman's side take on sexuality and man. Art. Because I am the evil man, Marshall. I represent the evil man. It's <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, I'd say it's all of the above. I think sexuality is one of those things that is odd to me that we have somehow relegated to something outside of our, I don't know, personal experience. When it's something that's so intimate and close to our everyday life. Hmm. You know? It is both the thing that has brought us here. Right. Everybody's a product of sex or at least sexual reproduction of some sort, even if it is done in a lab, Mm -hmm. we still need the two things to combine. Mm -hmm. Right. So and it's also part of our everyday understanding of ourselves and our everyday self-worth. So it has to be both. It has to be everything. And yet somehow we've sort of relegated into some like sort of little box that we can't look at unless it's the appropriate time and age to look at it. I love documentaries and I've watched almost every one that you could watch about human sexuality. And I'm not even talking about like regular human sexuality, like the margins or what we consider to be the margins, because I think everybody's sexuality is somewhat marginal and we're sold in this idea of what normal sexuality is, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think there's a lot of truth in the margins. And so I've watched, you know, People who are into sex robots, you know, that's a very mm-hmm. interesting subset, right, of people. Yeah. There's people who mm-hmm. are really deeply into animals. I mean, it's disturbing to watch people who talk about that, but it is a reality. It exists, you know. Uh, there is one that's really, really interesting on YouTube about objectum sexuals, people who are not attracted to people at all, but they're attracted to objects, you know, mm. specifically iconic landscape things or, you know, the Berlin Wall or whatever, or bow and arrows. Yeah, it's a, re- it's a really good one. I recommend anybody watch it. But it's why that documentary is so brilliant is because the documentarians don't involve themselves in the documentary. It's not sensational. It doesn't have any, like, backdrop music. They're not putting a narrative on it. It's just interviewing these two women who identify as objective sexuals 
who that is the reality that they live with every day. That is what they like and that is what they're attracted to. Mm-hmm. And God, it's just so fucking interesting, you know, something we don't think about, you know, and you're sort of like forced to empathize. Maybe that there is a word that we mentioned a lot. Empathize with these people. You yeah. Know? Right. Again, well, again, is the bridge. I think that's, that kind of goes back to this truth and beauty thing. Empathy is the spoon, not the sugar. It's mm-hmm. the, it carries Delivery the message. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the bridge because without it, you may not know that pain, but you can love that person through the pain or through that difference or through that void, through empathy. It is, that is beautiful. That's yeah. beauty. Yeah, That's because, what a good painting is. Yeah. You're giving that to someone else that like you're, you're like, I was just telling Marshall, like you, the way you paint your paintings, you're not subscribing to one idea. You're subscribing to all the ideas. You're saying, look at how many options there are. That is beautiful. Like different ways to think about yeah. life, no matter how ugly or truthful or. It all exists side by side. Your neighbor's can be doing something you're not aware of or approve of. And it all exists side by side. And just because you close your eyes and say that it doesn't exist or you don't want to acknowledge that it exists does not mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that you are choosing to be oblivious to it. And ignorance is a sort of bliss in its own, but I think awareness is bliss more so for me personally. You know, you like, you like confusion and awareness. Yeah. I think, but I do, I like for rare. me personally, I do have a strong moral compass too. And so like, I got into an argument once with a with a critic, like a, one of the critics that come into the academy when I was in school. And he was like, oh, you have a moral message in your paintings. He's like, you, hmm. there's definitely something you're telling people that they shouldn't do or whatever. And I got into it. I was like, no, this is just about hedonism or whatever. And then I'm like, God, he was so fucking right. I was being judgmental. I was kind of being prescriptive in my own way too and saying that this is wrong, you know, or that you are, you are not being, this is a moral judgment somehow. Is that possible to avoid taking a viewpoint if you're painting anything? Um, I think you could try, but I don't think you, I think if you try and you try to make a purely hedonic painting that tries not to take any sides or anything whatsoever, I think you will end up actually circling that back to yourself, you know, self-portrait. Well, everything is a self-portrait. There's like that whole website. All artists paint Uh (laughs) self-portraits. So, uh, uh, I think you end up circling back to yourself and it will betray more about who you are as a person than if you did try to put a moral message in there. You know, like I like people who you would look at in their paintings and they you'd be like, oh, this is just a purely pleasurable hedonic painting. I don't think that exists, really. Well, that's right, because a lot of people's morals and their impulses are at odds with each other. You know, you can you can believe one thing, one thing and your body or whatever is is sort of at odds with that i think that's where neuroses comes from in a lot of ways the suppression of that that sort of thing i think that 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 complexity though and that contradiction human contradiction i think like that's where you and i overlap in our work 
embracing that, seeing the beauty and potential in that contradiction, the inevitability of that contradiction. Yeah. Um, well, as you know, as the the evil man in the room who is is curious about these things, is there a thing that a man should not paint? Do you guys feel? No. 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 A man can paint anything he fucking wants. You I'm should, gonna, anyone can paint anything. I agree. And I want to circle back to the whole patronizing thing. I think a lot of times when they say that men shouldn't paint this or that, it feels patronizing to me as a woman that I somehow cannot digest or understand or I will be somehow af affected by an image that a man has painted oh, like is absurd to me like i hmm. give me the benefit of the doubt that i'm more intelligent than that you know hmm. listen there are many bad paintings done by all sorts of genders right and i've seen many bad paintings that men have done of, that have done you know just the thing that men shouldn't paint quote unquote you know women or whatever but none of that has to do with the subject matter you know that has to do with their execution and i don't hmm. mean even the technical execution it could just be literally there's some disconnect between what they're painting and how they're painting it and whatever. There's a whole mm -hmm. stew of things that make a bad painting. I don't think any of them are necessarily that subject matter. Exactly. I think, yeah. I think if I'm going to say that I think women should paint their gaze, I don't think such a thing exists in a unilateral sort of way. I think that a gaze is complex. I think it's nuanced. I think every woman, me and you, Sophia, have incredibly different gazes just between the two of us, right? So me and you are not going to have some sort of unilateral female gaze going on, right, between the two of us. You know, I might have more in common with you, Marshall, as far as my gaze goes, or, mm -hmm. you know, you and Sophia may have more in common. Mm -hmm. And just selling people on the idea that you need to sort of have a team according to your gender identity, and that is what you should be on and then there's a particular gender identity whose uh, viewpoint should be suppressed you know is just selling the age old that age old concept you know that there should be a suppression of one person one demographics ideas to benefit another's how mm -hmm. is that any different than the suppression of a woman's demographic to benefit the man's vice mm -hmm. versa i think everybody's viewpoint is valid doesn't mean i have to like it I do too. you know <laughs> but it means it's valid you I do too. It. And since you're a reader, I was just reading uh, Brad Easton Ellis's new book, White. And he's talking about how when he wrote like American Psycho or something, there was such an openness. I guess it goes back to Gen X, actually, in the culture at that time of art is ideas. All ideas are helpful, like to process stuff you know almost yep. like john stuart mills like if there's the whole civilization thinks one way and there's one person who thinks the other way that's a very important person and you need to hear them, no matter how bad shit the idea like yeah just throw it in the pot and his concern in this book is that we're getting further and further away from that even in the last 20 years since american psycho was written like it feels like those doors are closing for yeah, there's a Just, weird, um, there's a weird sort of like mutually exclusive outlook on, you know, viewpoint and empathy too. Like mm -hmm. me as a, as a person who's experienced her entire life as a woman, I am deeply, deeply curious what it's like to be a dude. And I, you know, my boyfriends, all my husbands, I was like, what were your 
boyhood sexual rituals like? Because I have my own experience with girlhood, sexual puberty and development. I would like to know what yours were like because that's something I never got to see. Or mm-hmm. or what about your sexual viewpoint now? Like, how do you feel now? Like, what is, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about that? You know, like mm-hmm. that really is deeply curious to me. And I don't think that any of that should be vilified. And, you know, and I grew up in New York City, a place where starting at the age of like 12, I was harassed on the street, you know? But that doesn't mean that all men are assholes. You know, mm-hmm. I've met many, 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 many assholes, mm-hmm. you know? But there is a validity to the male experience, you know, and a nuance to the male experience. And even the fact that we're starting to understand that male and female are two words of what is actually a very complicated set of words and expressions, you know. That's feminism. Mm-hmm. That's feminism. I think so. I think so too. And I think I, you know, there's this website, everydayfeminism.com. And there is just, if you want to be frustrated at the things that we shouldn't be, how we shouldn't be talking about certain subjects, if we mm-hmm. want to actually come and come to the middle somewhere and be together as a wholesome community, that is, it is, it is, I just like scroll through there just to get my fill of like, you know, I don't know, what's the word, you know, anger and frustration. I'm like, God, what is this article? Mm-hmm. God damn it. Mm-hmm. This is not what we should be talking about. We should be coming together as a community. What is your experience as a person with a penis growing up? I don't have a penis. I would love to know what it's like. Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah. paintings are an expression of that, you know, or uh, it, you're a person who likes, um, uh, like I'm primarily straight, but what is it like to be a person that likes primarily women? What is the set of experiences that you have that's different to me because I'm curious and I would like to know because I don't know. You're so curious. I want curiosity is great. Curiosity is great. Curiosity is the cornerstone of what we have, you know? Yeah, but I feel I'm not that interesting to just know about myself. You know, I feel the exact same way in, and I feel like it comes from a genuine place of like open hearted curiosity. It, it, and and I I often shy away from conversations like this for fear of putting my foot in my mouth. You know what I'm saying? Let's put several feet in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that today. I was like, God, I hope I don't put a foot. In and I'm like, fuck it. I'll put several feet. It's fine. It just it feels like I just want to know these things. And I'm really you know? sorry, Marshall, because I feel like that conversation should be had more and more. And instead, it's becoming scarier and scarier. And I think we should be able to. It hasn't been really my experience that those kind of conversations have been shut down. But I think generally speaking, artists are a pretty curious, open-minded group of people. And so we're able to have mm-hmm. conversations that go a little bit further than what is scary, you know? Right, yeah. right, right, right. But I love to talk to guys about their experience in life. You know, I think it's inc- completely interesting and completely different than what I did or what I had to go through. And in many ways, also exactly the same, you know? I want to know what your experience is being a female artist painting. Yeah. And sometimes difficult subject matter. And do you feel the weight of patriarchy in a, in an art opening or any of those things? Do you? I do, but from behind, if that makes sense, like so much of it, which is why I asked, like, when was this like, so much of what is in trend and is good right now is the fact that female voices, you know, minority voices, LBGTQ voices are really in the forefront right now in terms of young contemporary artists, mm-hmm. almost to the point where it feels somewhat 
again, the word patronizing is going to come up. It almost feels like if you're a young artist uh, and you fall into that category, you need to be making work about that if you want to have any sort of traction. And I feel like that is that is um, bad from behind. Right. So it sort of like makes this dynamic. Well, that you have to be working within those modalities in order to make any sort of progress, you know, Mm -hmm. and I like I, you know, I I kept saying like I'm a woman, but I'm not a particularly feminine woman, you know, like masculine energy is strong in me. And I've always been that way. And I've had female friends who I'd been like, God, your divine feminine energy is so strong. I will never be that person. I've always had like a stronger, more masculine side to me. And maybe that's helped me some, some in some ways, but in other ways it made me feel, I don't know, like I just, I don't want to gender my art, you know? And it's not that I don't want to, it just doesn't come out gendered. At least I don't think it does. And I don't want it. I don't, yeah, I've been in a situation where people have been like, oh yeah, she's a female artist. You should buy her work because blah, blah, blah. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I hate hearing that stuff. You know, it doesn't, hate it doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. Right. You know? So what, what about your art is made by a female perspective? I have a really hard time reconciling a lot of times that I even am female, if that mm. makes sense. Interesting. Um, in the sense that I don't align a lot with it. You know, like I've had a, a lot of formative um, or several formative experiences with hallucinogenics that have sort of like, and you know, I'm not advocating for the use of, but in my case, it was really, it's really illuminating, you know, in terms of it'll distill yourself from an outside perspective and it'll really give you that sort of thing. And like, you know, I had a hard time reconciling that I even am female in that way so i don't know i have no Hmm. idea which parts are not because every time i make a self-portrait it's not feminine it is has the characteristics the breasts and the whatever but i don't feel like it's feminine if that Mm -hmm. makes sense in terms of the ideal feminine ideal so if we're talking about truth and beauty right so the feminine ideal is on one side of that and then the personal truth is on the other side of that Mm -hmm. so i don't think i i ever felt like i fell much into that ideal side of things the beauty side of things right maybe from the outside yes but on the inside it's always been like i feel like if i could be a bag of mashed potatoes you know that is how i feel most of the time Mm -hmm. you know gender gender aside a bag of mashed potatoes is what i identify with most so sophia do you see her work as created by a woman when you look at it yeah yeah what about it what about it i think it has to do with the amount of dicks (laughs) (laughs) and the way the way you talk about them i know i know Uh, that perspective i share that with you yeah does that make sense yeah i share those jokes with you i share that angst so this is i share that (laughs) like that like I don't have a dick kind of perspective, right? I don't have a dick. What is it? How does it work? <laughs> wow, we everyone worships a dick. God, I hate the dick. But I love it too. But it feels so ah. great. Man, the whole world functions around like I share that <laughs> yeah. with you. It's so, like a, like that a weird way love done by one. So yeah. good. Let's talk about that. So like the these paintings have dicks in them. They're made by me 
How are these more masculine Where are the dicks? dicks? I, don't see, I don't see any dicks. Well, oh, I see one dick. On. Okay, I see one dick. Where? There's two. There's two. In They're the... very natural dicks. They're not symbols. They're That's hidden. What I... You're not okay. using That's them different. with any purpose. They're just part of that guy's anatomy. Yeah. She's That's using them. She's, she doesn't even need the guy. There's a, there's some there's of the dicks are just floating. Dick. They're symbolic. <laughs> and then there's dicks. an anatomical dick. But what aren't the what, then at that point isn't that an anatomical vagina on the lady? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're they're just sort of neutered. They're just sort of like okay. They're there, but they are not necessarily a symbol in and of themselves. You know. Right. They, they could be a symbol as part of the whole because those are very beautiful, fit people. You know, and that could be something that we could dissect, but that yeah. in the, the the pussy in itself is not necessarily the symbol that you're going for. Right. right? Yeah. Right. I'm just going for humans. Right. But they are a very specific kind of humans. They're fit. They're pretty. They got Chinese skin. Uh-huh. You know, there is something in there to digest that yeah, is beyond sure. just being human. Yeah. You know, there is nuance in there. It's just not as literal. Uh huh. In the way that she's using it. Interesting. Like penis as a standard. What about like, that one where the guy is holding the other guy up and there's a, a hanging dick close to his butt? Is it close to his butt though? I've seen dicks. It's pointed right at it. Yeah. Is that. Well, the way that you've silhouetted it is interesting, I think. But it's still flat. It feels flaccid. Is it flaccid? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't. I don't. I feel like your paintings might make a nod to sexuality they're not sexual but they aren't sexual and i wouldn't be able to guess it's like the how you feel about it they're they're aggressively unsexual to me yeah i think that's that is a a very interesting point of view to notice about yourself yeah Uh i agree i think there's something about the garden of eden there and the garden of eden as a symbol as a place where people were nude but innocent and so their sexuality well that's exactly what this is supposed to be yeah i was part of like a nudist group for a while in my early 20s and i um one of the things that they talk about or into is the fact that the nudity and sexuality are separate things like don't sexualize naked people kind of thing and i was down with that for a while but i'm like you know you can't actually divorce those two things you can and you could become you know comfortable with it you know Mm -hmm. going to the nude beach being around naked people it's a separate world but yeah those two things align and the way that they align you could either be okay with or you could try to distance and create two separate chambers in your brain for you know Mm -hmm. i prefer to keep it all in the same chamber kind of thing and i feel that in your paintings yeah Mm -hmm. i don't think we should be i don't think we should be uh, villainizing sexuality in that way. But at the same time, I do not want to be sexualized in every situation, you know? And sexuality is hyper villainized right now. Like to the point that, you know, millennial generation is comparatively is having zero sex, you know? Which is, you know, which is strange because I'm not sure that's been my, I don't know. Am I millennial? I don't know. I keep getting different answers to that. You're you're on the low end. Yeah. Yeah. So it should be from if you're a millennial, you were born 1980 through 95. I don't want to believe everything that I read on the internet. So I think the internet is like a very specific, extreme opinion and side. 
you know, and mm-hmm. it encourages polarity. So what you'll get on the internet is like a very specific opinion and people reinforcing that opinion. So I don't think that like millennials are in any way sharing common interest in villainizing sexuality. In my experience, especially with the circles that I hang out with in New York, like people are very open with their sexuality, you know, and more understanding and more understanding that consent is not like a consent is, can be an actually really great word and not just like a, a trigger word or Mm -hmm. a non-trigger word or something you make fun of online. If you're on the, I don't want to say the right side of things because I don't think right people are necessarily against consent, but they sort of, villainize the perspective that you want to make sure that everybody's okay and that empathy is important you know so i think uh i've noticed that in my generation of people like we are sexual in a way that feels more natural but it just could be the fact that i interact with people that are like that Mm -hmm. and they are becoming a bigger and bigger community of people Mm -hmm. you know and i appreciate that a lot and i think they are not as active online in terms of interacting with those posts yeah that could be true too that are trigger They're bait articles. They're made to trigger people into conversation and dialogue, you know, Mm -hmm. on one side or another. So I tend to not interact with that Mm -hmm. very much. I was hoping to read you guys something I wrote down after I had a conversation with Ben. Yeah, I love Ben. He said, I mean, I agree with some of this stuff, some of it, some of it I don't, but I want to know what you guys think. Living as an artist means being confronted with society and struggling to accept its norms as fate, struggling to behave within certain constructs, having questions that never get answered, a spiritual journey that never has a resolve, has moments of beauty and understanding, but it never has a full answer. And that's why people can't accept the artist and that's why the artist goes misunderstood. It's too much to be in touch or be touched by it all the time. People can only stand it in small doses. Sometimes those small doses are really, sometimes those small doses do really unlock things for them, enlighten them, make them feel understood. The artist's journey is life and it is a burden no one wants to carry. The artist doesn't even like it. (laughs) Making work and this is from something Jacob Brooks said, making work is like screaming from the bottom of a deep well and hearing a muffled something back in return and feeling relieved by that. I love that. Oh, that's great. No, I completely relate to that 100%. And I don't feel like, like I read this to somebody else recently, they're like, well, that's depressing. And I was like, you know what? I think it's pretty hopeful. What Mm -hmm. What do you think? Well, I mean, why would it be depressing if that's kind of what the truth is? You know, I should say I've never dated an artist. I've never been attracted to an artist. I've never so much as kissed another artist because I (laughs) deal with those problems. And I would hate for my partner to deal with the same problems that I deal with. And we would sort of be stuck in the vortex of what he told you which is that like oh my god you know and i'm i'm pretty bullshit as it is and a lot of those things like you take that with a lot of gravity right and i Mm -hmm. sort of don't take myself very seriously you know and uh, there are moments where i do and there are moments where i'm like i'm just a fucking moron you know just like everybody else Mm -hmm. you know and so i i look for difference and i look for a different set of problems in partners i guess because i'm dealing with this set of problems do you like it that they 
like novelty is not the right word, but there is something about the life you're living and the way your problems, your, your partners without being artists are somewhat out of touch with that and give you space to do that. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Space to do that without feeling like we are sharing the same space. That. That's what you like about a partner that doesn't do art. Yeah, we don't share the same space in that sense. It's, we share like different that. spaces and we could sort of have a bigger space between the two of us. You know, I'll be in his space, he'll be in mine, but only as a form of like, you know, distraction. I like I like dating an artist. What yeah, so I've I've met two types of people. People like me and then people like you who like dating other artists. And I'm really curious, like what is it about dating another artist that gives you more fulfillment? Well, I think that dating an artist can be extremely insightful because when you're in a relationship with someone, especially intimately, they get to know you and reveal things to you about yourself that you couldn't see without them. They become like a mirror in many ways. So when you apply that to the studio, it's fucking amazing. They can see your bullshit so fast and call it out and mm-hmm. be like, yo, this is really bad. You're going in a bad direction. Is this exclusive yeah. to art or, I mean, artists or, um, what do you mean? Well, uh, like, I guess like in terms of your art practice is what you're saying. I'm like, talking about why it's nice to date an artist. Right. Because I like that, that, that artist can be so, candid with me and I will understand where she's coming from Mm -hmm. um, and know exactly what she's talking about um, even though I didn't think of it myself and then there's like this aspect of like support like they know what your deepest self doubts are like and I mean I always give Christina the space that she needs to have that doubt and I, I let her have that. That's yours. That's important. But I'm here if you need me to cheer you on kind of thing. And then I think when you have that kind of relationship, that openness, you can't really get jealous of the other person. Their, their wins or your wins. Like if they made a really good piece. Ideally, yeah. Like, like Christina's making something right now. I feel like she hit, she she opened up this whole other space in her head she got she had a breakthrough that's so fucking exciting to witness that mm-hmm. because i love that person mm-hmm. so imagine having that level of support yeah back i don't know does that nice. make sense it does yeah that's an interesting i i kind of want to talk about that you're talking about sophia your partner having a breakthrough artistically uh-huh. And that's an important thing. But is it, in some ways, is it just a, a mailman sorting mail a little different one day? Like how important are breakthroughs as an artist? It's your life. It's your life, right. Uh-huh. What was a big breakthrough for you in your work? I could name the paintings that, that were breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. There's maybe two. And I've never painted anything better than that, at least in my opinion. I think everything else I've done is transitioning to a greater point. Hopefully, I will recognize that moment. But 
So was it like a high watermark or was it a brand new way of seeing the world? It was a brand new way of seeing the world. Has that carried through to later paintings yes. or was it? Okay. And that's why I can't say that I've outdone it yet. Mm. I'm moving. Uh-huh. Just a, almost like a revelation. Yeah. That's why, yeah. What about you? Same. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's like a couple of paintings that I did that I'm like, God, they were great and they were perfect. And huh. I will never be able to recreate that, you know. But I will always be chasing... I will be chasing the essence of that painting, you know, chasing the dragon. I'll be, ch yeah, exactly. And so are you competing with yourself in that way or other, or like yeah. yourself is spurring you on? I think, um, I think it's a double-edged sword. You don't want to be too confident as an artist. You don't want to be too into yourself and too like, I'm the greatest ever. Let me repeat that. Let me repeat that. Cause it works. Exactly. Because then you have no reason to get better. So it's, it sucks in one hand when you're really feeling down and low and inadequate, but it's the thing that keeps you going. It's your fuel. I want to keep improving. It's not this painting that I just finished. Not quite what I wanted. It's not 100%. I'll make it better in the next one. And you'll keep chasing that until the day you die. Like I've met many a pro a older professional artists that have never reached that goal. It's the thing that keeps you going. And then the people who are full of ego and narcissism, do they ever really improve do they ever have a reason to you know i think I, I don't know any of those people actually i don't know a purely narcissistic artist i never met one i know one <laughs> I, I think I'd be, I'd be curious to meet one Who is you it? know <laughs> you can beep it out <laughs> beep <laughs> you did say it i'll get fired <laughs> But then it becomes, you know, then you become a sort of, um, you know, then you start to decide what is the measure of success? What is the ruler by which you measure success? Is it selling paintings? Is it satisfaction, self-satisfaction? Is it good reviews? Is it shows? Is it, what is it? You know, I don't know because I don't, I haven't felt 90% of those things. I haven't actually gotten 90% of those things yet. So I'm not really sure. But the only thing I have to go from now is self-satisfaction. And that is the thing I chase the most because everything else is sort of an abstract concept, you know. Well, that's the boat, that's the yeah. boat analogy, right? You uh -huh. know, you have the sirens on either side of you. You're in the ocean, you have this ship. And the siren's like, oh, come on, you're amazing. Come over here. It's great over here. And you get, like, you fucking dock your boat and you stick there on the island of complacency until you die. And then the other one's like, you're a piece of shit. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Moral of the story is just stay on the fucking boat. <laughs> stay on the boat. Keep moving. Yeah, keep going. What, what do you think makes a good painting? Um, uh, So I have my personal taste and I think everybody has their personal aesthetic, mm -hmm. the things that they're attracted to. But generally speaking, I've been attracted to some form of, you know, aesthetically, they've all been very different. But like something where I could see the artist okay. expressing some form of personal truth, you know, some sort of sincerity, something where I'm, I don't feel like they're trying to sell me on something, you know. Give, give names then that uh, do that. I think Curry James Marshall he had oh, yeah. that show that just blew my mind and that was the first the time Breuer. I ever saw it. Yeah, that yeah, was the first great. time I saw his work in person and that was that was a great show. Brilliant show. Every single it's painting a huge in there. show. Yeah, and that one painting in particular, this, probably the smallest painting in the show where he painted a self-portrait of himself with that 
great big white teeth smile. Uh-huh. You know, it was tiny. It was like maybe, I don't know, eight inches or so. And that really stuck with me. You know, I could really visualize that painting. Yeah. Um, you know, but the way that he painted and the how he painted, what he painted, it was just all brilliant, you know. And there was something there that was, it felt truthful and it felt, you know. It does feel very truthful. I wanted to just talk maybe a couple more a couple more minutes. Let's touch on the fact that you're painting these on copper. Mm. And he and I were really looking at these pictures, some of the zoom-ins that you have. Um, the copper really makes makes the painting work for a couple, well, at least for us. We, we thought that we figured it out. We were like, oh. We, <laughs> when you're using the copper, that's the line. That's, that's the contours of yeah. most of the drawing. Yeah. And the paint is really thick. It's kind of gunky, chunky, goopy, and it's floating on top of this really smooth, shiny, darker. Yeah surface and i feel like if that was happening on a canvas it wouldn't work it's just it's too it's just so it would be so stuck on there but it feels kind of dissonant it feels like it's it could slide yeah. off you know i love that about it. i have a personal bias against canvas i never painted anything good on a canvas i don't know it just i think it has too much of a presence of its own it has a texture it's a fabric it feels like it's already has it's already a painting if that makes sense it's already texture so I always like was gravitating towards flat surfaces because then I could sort of like, you know, so I painted it wood panels for a while and that was mm-hmm. fun. And then I discovered, I went to Germany, um, went on residency in Germany and I discovered dye bond. And I was like, oh my God, this is like the smoothest surface. Every brush stroke, every hair from your brush will do something on this surface. And I mm. just, it was like a visceral experience. And I, that's how I was able to start painting from imagination because suddenly it went straight from my brain to my hand to the surface and the surface had zero interruption on it to it, zero like texture surface, whatever that was able to, I had a pure interaction with the canvas. Mm, and so that helped me a lot. And then I went on another residency about a year later. Um, and I brought copper panels with me because I took a bad etching class. I just, it wasn't a bad, it was a brilliant class. He was a great <laughs> professor. Um, I just did I just didn't like the, I didn't just didn't like etching. It just it was too technical. It was, again, it was interrupting my brain hand surface process because it was brain hand uh, an intermediary surface, uh, intermediary time. process, time, and then eventually you'll get to the surface if you don't fuck it up somewhere along the way. And it just was too many intermediary steps. And I'm really lazy and I like the shortest route to the, you know, the surface and the problem. Hmm. So I took this copper with me and I was like, copper requires a specific kind of way of working. It may seem like it's really slippery, but it's actually really sticky. I don't know if that makes sense, but it would make sense if you painted on it. It's really sticky. It doesn't want long brush strokes. It wants mm. actually like really small, tight brush strokes on it mm. with a lot of paint because it really sucks the paint off of your brush. So I started painting in miniature essentially on copper and I sort of been doing that ever since. And copper, I don't know, it's like alchemical. It like brings something out on me and I sort of have a pure interaction with me and my surface and... I don't sketch anything out. I don't plan anything out. It comes out how it comes out. For better or worse, you know, I'm sort of fine-tuning the compositions and the colors and being better about that. But as far as, like, the imagery and the content, like, 
all of it comes out because it was brain hand surface, you know, first shot, first try kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And copper really facilitates that for me. Probably next year I'll do bigger Daibon paintings again because like it's really hard on my back and my neck to paint miniature scale. So I'll probably paint some big Daibon ones and really move my shoulders and stuff. And then I'll go back to copper and, you know, keep going back and forth. Some of these... Oh, uh, because the copper, like the... the people you're painting are quite so small, small. Tiny, yeah. i mean are you using a magnifying glass you have a I, tiny brush i have bad using? eyesight so i have like macro vision so like i can't see very far away even in glasses and contacts and stuff but up close i could see really well well that's it's interesting perfect. your worldview is micro my macro yeah. and your vision is ma- mm-hmm. micro yeah i would love to get like that laser that sick laser eye vision you know <laughs> Get laser eyes. Yeah, I would love that. But, There's um, also a reflective nature to the copper that does feel like drawing lines, but also the openness of the copper being exposed. You can. There's like almost an implied depth to it. Like when it reflects the room, there's some sort of movement in the background. Yeah, yeah. I mean, time will tell how well that stays shiny or it'll turn like it oxidizes a, like a penny turns brown over time uh, it becomes no less beautiful I, I still think tarnished pennies are beautiful you mm-hmm. know but um there's ways i could preserve that you know yeah. and copper is a really great archival material too like it stays once it's on there it stays on there you know mm-hmm. then it preserves really beautifully so i'm not worried about that at all but as far as it staying shiny i don't know who knows mm-hmm. yeah. i think aging is part of the process yeah. It's so smooth, and the way you apply the paint. I remember you telling me, I love that it feels like butter. Yeah, it does. And and you even sculpt with the paint, too. I think that's Yeah, it's really fun. Cool. It's fun to do it. Like, all those anatomical things that you could do, but you could do it instead of with shading. You could do it with paint, you know? You sort of, like, cut out, I don't know, 20 steps of shading. It's almost like you a just relief. Do it all in one. Yeah. yeah. Just it is like that. And... Yeah. Hmm. It only works at that scale. Like when I was painting larger scale, like I couldn't do the texture with the paint surface per se, but I could do it with the brush marks, you know? Hmm. Yeah. No, I'm having a, I'm having a good time apart from my back, you know, which I sort of have issues with from time to time, but that's like a posture thing more than anything. Hmm. Um, I'm having a good time with the copper. Then it becomes a matter of um, where I'm at right now is that it it could take me a long time to make one of those paintings. And, um, you know, I haven't exactly had galleries knocking down my door wanting to give me shows and stuff. And that's to say that I would take me probably the better part of a year to even make enough work for a show. But, um, you know, I'm kind of my insecurity right now is am I fighting against the grain? Am I fighting at all? Or am I just making paintings and they will sort of professionally go nowhere in that sense, you know, or do I just continue to have faith that the people who like my work will continue to like it. And that I'll just, you know, eventually is it, is my sense of naive idealism that if I continue doing the work as best as I can, that will eventually pan out for me. That is the question that I go to sleep with every night Hmm. is continuing to do what I'm doing enough in a sincere way as I can do it. Is that enough? Or am I just deluding myself? I think enough. it must be because you're on the path in the first place. I think you have to trust that. 
Yeah, it could easily be a path that goes nowhere. That's in my darkest moments. That's how I think, you know, it could easily be a path that goes nowhere. Do you, do you mean commercially nowhere? Is that the, well, I mean, doesn't, you know, I like, I, I would like to have a career that spans gallery shows, perhaps museums, you know, mm-hmm. some form of critical acclaim. Like I dream the big dream, you know, I would but love that. that. That's it's not why it's, you know, it's not the, the main impetus of why I make work, I would probably still continue it without it, but all those things would be lovely and nice, you know, mm-hmm. and I've set that ambition for myself. I feel like everything that, that you're talking about with like the dream and the, can I be the artist I want to be or the greatest version of myself following this path? I feel like that question I don't feel like you need to ask that question. I feel like everything that you need, you have right now. Thank you. I think you just have to trust that. <laughs> I think that's how I, I, that's how I think 80% of the time. And it's about dealing with the rest of the time where you don't, you know, and sometimes those moments can really, you know, it's also my least creative moments when I think those thoughts, but mm. my most creative moments coincide with my best moods, my most confident thoughts, you know, and that is what you need to keep going with, you know, almost like a, like naive, I'm just going to keep going and eventually the truth will out and eventually I will get somewhere or nowhere or die in between. Do you know what I mean? what you were talking about earlier was really like poignant and, and I don't think there's an answer for any of us. It's like kind of like what Bernardo was saying, like, what did he say? Like, if you quit, you're, you were not really a painter to begin with. It's Mm -hmm. like painting is like, it's like, he said, it's like having to pee. Like (laughs) it's not comfortable and you might not even want to have the urge to pee, but you just have to do it. And yeah. that's what a painter is. You're forced. You're forced. But and yeah. I think that's so interesting because, you know, you could sell a painting for $200,000 and you'll still have those same doubts. Like, yeah, what you'll never, I don't think we'll ever really arrive. It's just sort of like, but you'll still have the what's same tomorrow feel like, you you'll know? still have the same urge as exactly. well as the same doubts and the same doubts of like, what does this life really look like? And almost to like Kyle's point, it's like, it takes real courage to do this. Cause that's, yeah. there's no security like Jeff Coons. Well, he's not really an artist in that way, but like, I'm sure he has enough money, but there's still those doubts. Yeah. I think I I was really blessed to like right after graduate school to be able to go on a residency with a bunch of older artists who were really in the, you know, past way past emerging, really established artists. And just to be at the same table where they talked about the problems that they deal with, you know, I was just like, God, this is like gold for me because I am understanding that, me idealizing some sort of a distant future in which I am successful is not, is it just means that there's going to be a different scale of problems, you know, mm-hmm. it's the same problems, different scale. Money is still a thing. Uh, validation is still a thing. Mm-hmm. Shows are still a thing. Self 
feelings of self-doubt and inadequacy are still a thing. It's just the scale of it and the consequential nature of it is different because right now, you know, whether I fail a painting or not is entirely up to me and it stays quiet and hidden in my studio versus 20 years from now, that might not be the case. And I might be up to some sort of public critical scrutiny. And so like, I, I feel like that was really formative for me to get to hear those conversations and mm -hmm. to really hear that it never really goes away. Problems never really end you know, and you just have to learn how to cope better and better. And that's kind of what I've learned graduating. Mm -hmm. So it's been like, what, two and a half, two years now. And I've just learned to cope better and better, you know, beautiful. Yeah. And you just have to figure out what that means. Like six months out of after graduating, I was duh. I was so depressed. I was so down. I was like crying. I was like completely, you know, like what the fuck? And now I feel like I've just, you know, you just have to figure out what works for you, whether it's dietary exercise or whatever, you know, I figured out what's working and I'm figuring out better and better every year what works. Mm -hmm. And you just have to live with the fear that you're going to wake up in a panic in the middle of the night a couple times a month or so or more or less or whatever. You hear that, everybody? It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay, but there's no choice but to be okay, you know? Like, what's the worst What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst case scenario? And um, for me, I guess it would be like living with my parents or something. <laughs> I think they're not that bad. <laughs> I could be homeless. Well, there's very many steps I would have to go through to be homeless. So, like uh -huh. I said, art is a luxury. Making art is a luxury. You know, it's very, it's a very privileged position to be in a place in a city where we can make art and survive based on having jobs that are peripheral to art making or uh, the actual art making itself. So but I it consider also, myself fortunate. It also comes with balancing that contradiction of the burden that it kind of brings as well, because you're not, you have to you kind of have, are combating all these ideas. You're mm -hmm. carrying all those ideas and yeah. the way you're perceiving the world into these paintings and they mean so much to you. And it, Consequentially, they do mean a lot to other people sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I idealize that. Like, I'm yeah. like, oh, God, it'd be great if sometime somebody was like, God, this means so much to me, this artist, you know, and they speak to me and they've never even met me. They speak about me. You know what I mean? They've never met me. But I'm like, I don't know. That's a different kind of set of problems to deal with, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I'm a dreamer. I'm an idealize, you know, have goals and ambitions, but... Lord knows I'm learning year by year that that's not what keeps you afloat. You know, it's something else. Thank you so much for coming today. Yeah. Uh, make sure you go on our website, theartgrindpodcast.com. Click the PayPal button. That's right. It's yellow. Yeah. So just go ahead and get started on there. Leave, leave some money, honey. Oh, and it, hey, do... Uh... I, I, of course, hate Instagram. And there's conversations to be had on there. Yeah. Like, comment on the post, like, you know, good or bad, whatever. Engage. Engage. We can, we can love each other. I think that sounds great. All right. Signing off. See you later. <laughs>